Deuteronomy, how's that for a liturgical whiplash now? Okay, do you feel that? Did you feel that moment? Deuteronomy 22. We are going to read together verses one through 12. And I am looking forward to getting into this text. I mean what I say. There are still some portions of this text that leave me flabbergasted. But we're going to give it a shot in the Lord's kindness. Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 12, because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God, this is the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand for one of the primary reasons we gather as God's people to hear from God. Deuteronomy 22, Moses writes as he is carried along by the Spirit. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his pardon or with any lost thing of your brothers which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house and you make a parapet for your roof, rather you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I couldn't help but think a moment ago as I had to cough, isn't it something to be in the height of allergy season and to be exposed publicly to COVID? As a parent, I can remember the time when our children became old enough to visit their friends at their friends' houses. I remember that transition. And I think I remember that transition in part because I do, just to be frank, I love being around my children. I do. I love their presence. I love being able to engage with them. And and as they were quite young, they were always there when I went home, you know? And then as they're getting older, they're not always there. And just to be frank, I don't like that. I don't like that. And yet it's necessary. And it's a sign of maturity. So I remember this transition that began to take place. My children going over to friends' homes and, and I'm not with them. And so, you know, thinking as a, as a dad, that's odd. 
I'm not even there with them. And we had these conversations as this transition was materializing. And I shared with our children that there were certain rules that we had in our home that were unique to our home. You know, because think about a young child, right? A young child is told, don't do this, do this. And they think that everybody always, everywhere ought to be doing the same things. And you know, they're little legalists. They love the opportunity to say, well, my dad says this, right? Or my mom says this, or we don't do it that way. So I had this conversation with them and I said, look, we have these household rules that may be unique to our house. When you are at someone else's house, it's important that you submit to their household rules. You're in their home. You're on their property. And so just kind of go with the flow, to a point. If you're going over there, we trust the people. So go with the flow. Abide by the rules of that particular household while you're there. Well, in Deuteronomy 22, God continues, if you will, he continues to give these household rules to the people of Israel. Israel is his household. Moreover, they are about to enter his land, the land of Canaan. This was the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so much of Deuteronomy, including our text this morning, consists of instructions concerning how God orders his household. And if we are reading this text historically, let's say, If we're reading this text in light of Israel's experience at that time, then we understand God is offering instruction for this particular people at this particular time as they are standing on the plains of Moab waiting to enter the land of Canaan. However, and we do some of that, absolutely we ought to do that. We're not just reading it historically. We're reading this as Christian scripture. And so what we find in Deuteronomy 22 also is instruction for the people of God, even today, instruction for you as members of the household of faith, the household of God, as it were, as you journey to the final land God has promised, a new heavens and a new earth, to use Peter's language, in in which righteousness dwells. So that's how we're reading this text We're reading it historically, absolutely, but we are also reading this text as inspired Christian scripture. And what we find as we move through these instructions, as we're beginning this, and you need to take note of this, is consistently as God is instructing his people concerning his household and how to live in his land, what he tells his people is they are to be distinct from surrounding nations. This has come up time and time again in Deuteronomy and it will continue to come up. They are to be distinct and they are to be divinely ordered. It ought to be apparent that this is God's household. These are God's people. This is God's land and they are existing as it were in submission to God's gracious rule. Now I've stolen that summary actually from Graham Goldsworthy in some ways been influenced by Goldsworthy and how he reads scripture. Some of the instructions we find in Deuteronomy make little sense to us, to be honest. You probably gathered that as we were reading it, right? A mother bird and eggs. 
baby birds, how to handle that situation when you find this nest, the parapet on a roof, who in the world is hanging out on top of shingles? We'll unpack all that together. And it wasn't shingles. And we'll talk about all of that. I do wonder though, if that's part of the point. In God's sovereignty, in his wisdom, I wonder if part of the point is whether the instruction given by the sovereign Lord makes sense to us or not. If we've come to know God as omnibenevolent, as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, we are to posture ourselves by his mercy in submission to him. We are to trust him. I heard a recent conversation in which some were challenging authorities because the rules didn't make sense. And, and to a point, that's okay. We are Americans after all. But there is something to the posture that says, it doesn't make sense to me, but I trust this God. It's not that everything he says makes perfect sense, but I know him and he knows me. And I know that what he does is out of infinite love displayed through Christ Jesus, his son, for me. So I think that's part of the point as we make our way through a fairly obscure and enigmatic passage like Deuteronomy 22. I'll probably say those kinds of things a number of times from this point forward. This morning, so if you're, in, if you're uh, taking notes, as it were, you're going to ask and answer one question and we're going to answer it in four ways. So one question, answering it in four ways. Here's the question. How were God's people to live in God's land? How were God's people to live in God's land? We could ask it more specifically. How were God's people to live distinctly and divinely ordered lives in God's land? And we are going to answer this question by offering four ways or four instructions that grow right out of the text. So the first one, some of them a little longer than others. And I take it, by the way, that the housekeeping issues did not take away from sermon time. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm partially joking, okay? The first instruction God gives us is this. Take loving responsibility for one another. Take loving responsibility for one another. Look at the text with me, beginning in verse one. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. Well, just turn a blind eye when you see an ox or a sheep walking about in a field knowing that that sheep or that ox belongs to someone else. You shall take them back to your brother. Verse two, and if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. The assumption is you're actually going to take care of it and feed it, water it. Your dime, your nickel, taking care of your brother's things. Then you shall restore it to him. Verse three, and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find, you may not ignore it. Don't miss that. 
You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. So God's people were to take responsibility, loving responsibility for one another. This is, as it were, the antithesis to finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's catchy and unbiblical. All right? This is the exact opposite. No, if I find something that didn't properly belong to me, it's my responsibility to take care of that something out of love for my brother or my sister. And if I don't know to whom it belongs, I'm to take it in and take care of it with the possibility of that brother or that sister now coming and looking for it and then gladly and joyfully giving it back to my brother or my sister. Notice similarly verse eight. We're gonna tie a couple of verses here together, a few verses rather. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. Is it roof or roof? Depends on where you're from in America, doesn't it? that you may not bring the guilt upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Here again, Israel was to take loving responsibility for one another. They had been living as nomads now for 40 years. They did not have permanent houses. They were dwelling in tents and they were always on the move. But now God was bringing them into the land of Canaan and they were going to inhabit these permanent dwelling places, these houses. And on the top of these houses existed, as it were, a kind of living room, an exterior living room. This is comparable to what we might use a back deck for in East Tennessee. We've got a back deck. We love going out there. Some of you have back decks, and it's a wonderful place to host others and to gather together for a time of community, eating a meal together. And in, in these times, God's people would gather together on top of their houses. They would host others because the house itself was quite small. You didn't host inside. You hosted outside on your roof and you sat there and you did so oftentimes in the evening times as it was cooling off. We understand that also in East Tennessee, don't we? And so what God instructs here is that it's your responsibility to build a parapet, which is just a railing as it were, a railing that helps protect others from falling off of your roof. It's your responsibility because you are to take loving responsibility for one another. This is to characterize God's people living in God's land under God's gracious rule. If we were to turn to passages in the New Testament, and I'll mention some of these, we would find actually but the same is true for the church today. In fact, Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says this, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another is one of the primary marks of those who have been born again. Those who have come to know God as their father through faith in Jesus Christ are also those who are growing in their love for the people of God. They do feel the responsibility, the loving responsibility of taking care for 
one another, of indeed being their brothers and their sisters' keeper. A friend of mine who serves overseas, uh, sharing the gospel, has shared with me that one of the differences in the culture in which he lives from American culture, he says that in the culture in which he serves and the culture in which he lives, he, they send their kids out. I mean, they, they just send them out. Open the door and off they go. And they don't know where they go. They just go. And he said this was, this was unique for us. Took some getting used to, but what we found was actually in this particular culture, everyone has a sense of responsibility for everyone else's children. So when you see a child, no matter the age of the child, when you see a child, you feel as a part of that community, you feel a sense of responsibility for this child. And so this is a bit different from our particular culture, although there's some of that. Let's be honest. The reality in our culture is this. You do you, I'll do me. In fact, some of us are even a bit timid and trepidatious about walking up to someone else's child and asking questions like, where's your mommy? Where's your daddy? We're afraid that mommy or daddy might yell at us. Should you be doing that? That's not how we behave, right? If anyone has the audacity to correct someone else's child in our culture, oftentimes the immediate response of the parent is, who do you think you are? That's a weakness, brothers and sisters. That's a weakness. It wasn't that long ago when that wasn't the case. Even in my childhood, I... I remember adults taking responsibility for my behavior and being led by, at that particular point in my life, being led at times by a a single mom who worked her tail off to provide for us before she married my pops. Worked her tail off to provide for us. She wasn't always able to be around and be with us, so my brother and I kind of, we ran around a bit. Did various things that Boys tend to do when they're unsupervised. And we had men and women who loved us enough, let's say, to interject and provide some leadership. That's closer to the idea in the text. Take loving responsibility for one another. And, and let's, let's communicate the flip side. Receive that responsibility from others. That's what it means to be a community, isn't it? Receive that love from other people. Sometimes it demands more humility to actually be served than it does to serve. And so this is a text that communicates to us God's people are characterized by love for one another. Will there be some of us who misstep? Absolutely. This side of resurrection, you better believe it. God is calling each of us to have this humble, loving posture through which, in which, by which we are extending love to other members of the body of Christ, to other members of our church family. Now, a couple more things about this. This actually is the longest one. I should have told you when you're taking notes. This is the longest one. It demands most of the space given to any one particular instruction in this text. Did you notice that the sin 
against which this command is addressed is not a sin that is committed as much as a loving responsibility that is omitted. Did you notice that? This is not so much a sin committed as much as a loving responsibility that is omitted. You may have heard that there are both sins of commission and there are sins of omission. I remember being taught this as a young Christian. Sins of commission take place when we directly disobey God's instruction by doing something that is overtly sinful in defiance against what God actually proscribes, says not to do. But sins of omission take place when we fail to do what God has commanded us to do. This is similar to what James says in James chapter four, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. That's a sin of omission. As followers of Jesus Christ, I would submit to you this morning that we have learned and are learning what love looks like not by trying to concoct this in our mind, not by brainstorming, not by dreaming it up. We have learned and are learning what love actually looks like by knowing Christ, who is God's love for us. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know a savior in Christ Jesus the Lord who took loving responsibility for us. Isn't that the gospel? That's what Jesus did. What Jesus did not do, if we can speak about it in this way, the eternal son of God did not, in relationship with the father, say something like, well, that's their plight. Their sin is their problem. Rather, the gospel communicates that God the son voluntarily, voluntarily became human while remaining truly God, was born by means of the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the Virgin Mary, grew up on this earth, suffered typical challenges of life in a fallen world, obeyed the Father, perfect obedience for us, suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross in our place and for our sins, was buried and was raised in glorious power from the dead on the third day, appeared to many and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he prays for us. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. So what we are called to in this text is not simply what God God demands of us, it's what God provides for us. In Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I would submit to you that it is absolutely impossible for you to love in the ways God has called you to love. 
And so I encourage you this morning, don't leave this place without coming to know the God who is love and has shown you his love by means of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about Christianity, about the gospel, about the love of God, about walking with the Lord, then stay after the service and have a conversation with us. As you exit this room, take a left, and on the right-hand side out there, there is a room called Crossroads. And there'll be a pastor in there who would love to converse with you and to pray with you and even be asked questions by you about what it means to follow the Savior who took loving responsibility for us. So that's first. God's people are to take loving responsibility for one another. Second, the second command given in the text is display the order of God's design display the order of God's design. Verse five, look with me if you would. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. On the one hand, As I've mentioned to you, many of these instructions are ways in which the people of Israel were to be distinguished from the Canaanites or the inhabitants of Canaan that were in the land of Canaan and would remain in the land of Canaan actually for many more years to come. And I think this is no exception. In fact, the word that's used here, abomination, is the same word, toavah or toavot, the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 12, to distinguish God's people and the practices of God's people from the abominations of the Canaanites. And so I take it that this is one of the ways God's people is to be distinguished from the inhabitants of Canaan. So some commentators have suggested that this particular instruction in verse 5 is a direct repudiation of Sacerdotal transvestism. How's that for a mouthful? Sacerdotal transvestism. In other words, God is prohibiting cultic pagan practices where priests would dress up as members of the opposite sex in a kind of religious ritual celebrating the fertility gods. I think that's possible and perhaps even likely. So this is a way for God to distinguish his people from the pagan practices of others. On the other hand, however, God consistently instructed his people to live in the land of Canaan in ways that faintly reflected life in the original land, the Garden of Eden. In fact, the language that's used consistently in Deuteronomy is reminiscent of the language that you find in Genesis 1 and 2. This surfaces more and more, even in the Hebrew text, even in the Greek text, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. When the land of Canaan is, of course, described in so many similar terms as the land God made in Genesis 1 and 2. So what's happening here is on the one hand, God is distinguishing his people from the Canaanites, absolutely. On the other hand, what God is doing is he's calling them to reflect his good design in creation. This is inherent to creation, God is saying. 
That is to say that God's original and good design in the Garden of Eden included a basic binary distinction between males and females. That is apparent in Scripture. I don't think this is up for debate among those who want to remain historic and biblical Christians. I'm being frank. There are well-meaning and sincere people, I'm not questioning sincerity, who go to the text of Scripture and suggest that there is equivocation or ambiguity and even permission for a blurring of the lines between men and women, boys and girls. But just know this is a new position for those who call themselves Christians. This was always assumed and always taught because it was apparent and remains apparent in the text of Scripture. This distinction between men and women, boys and girls, was to continue itself even after the fall, even after Genesis 3, in a number of ways, not the least of which is various cultural expressions of how boys dressed, how men dressed, how girls dressed, and how women dressed. And friends, boy, we could preach an entire sermon series on this, and and doubtless probably will at some point. While sin has certainly brought a degree of gender confusion, yes. And there are well-meaning, sincere followers of Jesus who are afflicted internally about this issue. There are. I believe that. I mean, I was, as it were, born. I was conceived with proclivities to sin. And so it shouldn't surprise us when someone says, I do love the Lord Jesus, but I've always had this turmoil and this challenge and this confusion So sin has brought a degree of confusion. It has brought a degree of corruption. But sin has not eliminated this basic distinction between men and women, boys and girls. And I would say, I would say just to be clear, while confusion exists this side of resurrection and and this side of sin, because sin permeates all of our experiences and every facet of our lives, it is absolutely essential to historic and biblical Christianity to assess these things as corruptions that are alien to God's good design, not a part of God's good design. If you have questions on that, I hope you can know that I am a pastor who would welcome conversations. But I must be true to the word of God. And the most loving thing a pastor can do is be true to the word of God. I do feel like I need to say something else. To some of you in here, who sense a more concentrated brokenness in this area, perhaps. Who have an acute experience of maybe what it's like to experience gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, blurring of the lines 
blurring of the lines between this basic binary distinction that is indeed inherent in God's good creation, but you've experienced something that conflicts with God's basic binary distinction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough for you. It is enough. The promise of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is not simply sins are forgiven. The promise of the gospel is that for those who are found in Christ Jesus, we can be confident of complete restoration and transformation from all of our brokenness. That may mean for some of you, that may mean, because I don't want you to feel isolated, everybody in this room is broken. Everybody in this space is broken. And that brokenness manifests itself in a number of different ways. Everybody in this room is perverted in some form or fashion with regard to gender and sexuality. It just manifests itself in a number of different ways. But those who have come to know Jesus Christ are being pieced back together. And while it may not mean that this side of resurrection, you experience complete freedom from all that displeases the Lord, it does mean that you can be confident that when Jesus Christ returns and you see him as he is, you will finally be like him. That's the hope of the gospel, right? Okay. Well, goodness, I didn't plan on spending that long on that point, but perhaps it was helpful, and I hope it was transformative through Christ. Third, third, what God commands of his people is that they exercise dominion with moderation. Exercise dominion with moderation. Look at verses six and seven. This is, I gotta be frank, this is one of those passages that I read and I think, Lord, are you sure? Verses six and seven. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. It's possible. By the way, it's possible that there was a Canaanite practice that this instruction prohibits, but we don't know. We just don't know. In fact, I heard one of the better theologians that I know recently say something like this. We just actually don't know what this is referring to. How's that for comfort as you read God's word and interpret it? (laughs) But remember, that may be part of the point. Because God in his sovereignty, in his mercy, in his wisdom has permitted that. Are we going to trust him? Some have rightly suggested that taking the young and leaving the mother preserved a food source. That's true, isn't it? Like you find a mother bird in a nest and you find three eggs. For those of you who don't like eggs, I'm sorry. What God says here is you can take the eggs and presumably eat the eggs. He says take them for yourself. It's assumed, of course, they're going to be eaten. Take the eggs and eat the eggs, but don't take the mother. Why? She's going to lay more eggs. You take the mother, you're going to eliminate your food source, you see? And for people who have been traveling about and wandering about in the wilderness for 40 years eating manna, 
it would have been difficult in that moment to harness and bridle their appetites. And so I do, I do think that what God is doing here is he's exhorting God's people, he's exhorting the Israelites to a degree of moderation and wisdom. But I also think, you know, these are ruminations, this is challenging. I also think that because of the reminiscence of Genesis 1 and 2 found in this text and throughout Deuteronomy, that there is here some instruction about exercising dominion under God's sovereignty in the land. What does it look like? I mean, God actually telling, of course, Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But that's the same word for land, fill the land and subdue it. What does that look like in the land of Canaan? What does that look like post the fall? It's a different land. It's a land that's still plagued by sin. However, It's a land in which God's instruction originally to exercise dominion still applies. And so I think what God is doing here is he's exhorting his people, exercise dominion with moderation. God's people are not to have a haphazard and careless approach to God's creation. And brothers and sisters, this is before the green movement Not long ago in Deuteronomy, we won't turn there, I will, Just to glance at it, Deuteronomy 20, at the end of Deuteronomy 20, we found that God actually instructed the people of Israel not to cut down too many trees before the green movement. Why? Because it all belongs to God. And Israel needs to remember this. They are not free to treat God's creation as they so choose, according to their own capricious whims. They are to govern, lead, benefit from, yes, even eat from Creation under the authority of their sovereign God. I think that's the idea here. Perhaps there are some applications for us, those of us in the room even who enjoy hunting. Consider the ways in which these kinds of texts inform us. They don't outlaw hunting. I don't believe that at all. In fact, there's permission given throughout Scripture to kill and eat for God's people. But perhaps this tempers us a little bit. Perhaps this even tempers a a failure to carefully, prayerfully, and thoughtfully consider how our actions impact God's good creation. Moreover, as Jesus said in Luke 12, 6 and 7, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten? before God. Why, Jesus goes on to say, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Perhaps this is also part of what God is instructing, exhorting, and even encouraging us with. If God makes it a point in his word to give instructions concerning how to treat baby birds, How much more will he care for you who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ? So as God's people, you are to take loving responsibility for one another. As people who have come to know the love of God in Christ. Secondly, you are to display the order of God's good design. 
Third, you are to exercise dominion with moderation. And finally, you are not to combine what is incompatible. Incompatible, sorry. Compatible. Compatible, that's the word, Alan. There I am. There I am. (laughs) I happen to look over at Alan and he's frowning. He's probably thinking, is that a word I don't know? Compatible, not compatible. You are not to combine what is incompatible. There we are, we're back on track. Verses nine through 11, look now at the text with me and we'll wrap up with this instruction. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now again, what's happening? I think there's a reference here back to Genesis 1 and 2 to the kinds of creation, these categories in creation. I do. I think that again, what God is doing is summarizing again and drawing us back to the Garden of Eden. As Israel enters the land, they are to operate in the land, recognizing, of course, this is a kind of restoration that God has caused by means of his mercy in drawing them out of Egypt. So that's a part of this. But more broadly, what God is instructing his people is not to take two dissimilar things and join them together. Consider, we won't go through each of these specifically because I do think they're a kind of category. Consider the instruction not to plow with an ox and a donkey. Yoked together. What is a yoke? Well, a yoke is something that would connect at the neck two animals for the purpose of work. And they would work together, two of them, stronger than one of them, and they would work together in the same direction at the same pace. And what God says here is quite practical. Don't take an ox and a donkey and yoke them together. Why? Different temperaments, different degrees of strength, different gates, G-A-I-T-S. They walk differently. They move differently. This won't go well. Okay, the things are going to start doing this business. They're going to be all over the place. No, you take an ox and you yoke the ox to an ox. You take a donkey and you may yoke the donkey to a donkey. Take two similar things and put them together. Don't take two dissimilar things and put them together. The Apostle Paul, I think, alludes to this passage in a popular passage. Many of you may know this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Remember that passage? He goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or worthlessness, another name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? there should be this clear distinction between God's people. I think this is the point. Between God's people and those who are not his people. That's where Paul takes this. This means that Israel was to be distinct even down to the way they farmed in the land of Canaan. The Canaanites worshipped fertility gods and one of the ways you worshipped a fertility god was around harvest time. 
had a lot to do with agriculture and farming. What is God saying to the people of Israel? No, farming belongs to me. Oxen, donkeys, they belong to me. Wool, linen belong to me. Your clothing belongs to me. And you are to be distinct from the surrounding nations. This is no less the case today for the church. It takes a different form, doubtless. In fact, one of the forms it took, and we'll just mention it here, verse 12, one of the forms it took for the people of Israel is they were to make tassels on the four corners of the garment with which they covered themselves. And we aren't given much detail here, but if we were to look back at Numbers 15, verses 38 to 41, we would find out that this is another one of those ways God is distinguishing his people from the surrounding nations and God is reminding his people that they belong exclusively to the Lord so that when they saw these tassels, they were reminded of God's good and benevolent instructions. Do we wear tassels today? No. No, we could. But I don't think... It's demanded of us as new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. So while we may not wear tassels and while we may not concern ourselves necessarily with different kinds of seeds planted by one another, while we oftentimes, most of us wear mixed clothing, right? Doubtless most of you in the room have mixed clothing on We are, nevertheless, to remember that the God who is holy has called us in Christ to live in a manner that reflects his holiness. That's the point. What the world desperately needs from the church is for the church to be distinct as a church. Young people, those of you who know the Lord, whether you're nine years of age or 18 years of age, what your friends around you desperately need from you is what God actually has called you to do. Be distinct as a follower of Jesus Christ. As the apostle Peter writes, quoting Leviticus in 1 Peter 1.15, as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. So Deuteronomy reminds us that there is not one facet of our existence. Not farming, not clothing, not even a bird's nest that is to be isolated as it were from the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ Every square inch belongs to the sovereign Lord of all. Our marriages, our parenting, our finances, church, and Christians, our homes, our jobs, our aspirations and goals in life, our retirement accounts, if we have one, our cars, our hobbies, our sports, our leisure activities, our walks in the park, our throwing a frisbee, our picnics, our times of fellowship together, our friendships, 
our entertainment, our eating, our drinking, all of life brought into submission to Jesus Christ. That's Deuteronomy. That's the call of God in Christ through Deuteronomy for us at First Baptist Powell. As that great hymn penned by Edward Perrinet reminds us, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of what? All. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race. Ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that in your kindness and the work of your spirit, through Deuteronomy 22 this morning, you will have brought our hearts, our affections, our very lives into submission to your generous and benevolent authority exercised in Christ. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight as your household. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things and all God's people said,